It's good to be with you. Are you enjoying this series on, uh, on Acts? It's been good, hasn't it, so far? Uh, I wonder how many sermons have been preached in the history of Christianity. Uh, there are probably thousands being preached this very day uh, as, we, as we hear uh, all around the world, God's people gather together and the word will be preached. Uh, probably mi- must be millions, tens of millions even, sermons have been preached uh, throughout the last 2,000 years. And in today's passage, we're looking at the first, the first Christian sermon uh, preached by Peter, by good old Peter. Uh, Peter, the disciple who seemed to specialize in misunderstanding Jesus and putting his foot in it. I guess not normally qualities one looks for in a preacher, but that's, that's Peter. In fact, actually two months before this sermon was preached, Peter had denied, publicly denied, even knowing Jesus. Remember that incident with the, with, with the servant girl as Jesus is being arrested? I did not know him, I did not know him. That's less than two months ago. And yet here, nine o'clock in the morning, on the day of Pentecost, Peter steps out from the shadows to explain that the disciples are not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. But that God is doing a new thing among them. God is doing a new thing. I love this this quote from, from Willie Jennings. Before the Spirit came, Peter had lots of words but little to say. Do you know anyone like that? They speak a lot, but they don't actually say much. Uh, But from now on, his words are a commentary on what the Spirit is doing and what God has done for us in Christ. And in some ways, that's what's happening in Acts, particularly in, in the sermons interpreting what God has done and what God is, is doing. I wonder if you remember this. It, happened, it was a couple of years ago uh, when the, the statue of Edward Coulson was, was torn down and in Bristol and dumped in the river uh, and generated a huge debate. Uh, and I remember hearing lots of people say, you can't change history. You can't... Uh, change history. History is in the past. It's already happened. It's there, set in stone, as it were. And of course, that's true. Uh, you can't change events that have happened, but you can understand them differently. You can see them in a fresh way and through fresh eyes, from a different perspective, as it were. Well, in his sermon today, Peter is, in a sense, setting out to demolish a number of statues. He's inviting his congregation. His congregation was mainly Jews. It was in Jerusalem. It was one of the Jewish festivals. Uh, there were lots of... It was, it was Jewish. It's a Jewish audience. And Peter is inviting them to, in a sense, reevaluate their story. That's why he keeps quoting the Old Testament and kind of showing them a fresh take on very familiar passages. He wants them to listen to voices they had missed. 
and to see God's purposes in a new and in a fresh way, in a Jesus-shaped way. And I guess the first statue, as it were, is the way his audience would have understood history, history past and present, if you like. This is a very simple, always when you see something on screen like this, it's simplified, understanding of how Jews, if you like, would have understand I say history, it's about as much about the future. So, so history is divided into, into two periods. This present age and the age to come. So this present age, I guess, is past and present. And the age to come is future. This present age is the world we know it. Where there is beauty and there is joy but where everything, in a sense, is tainted by brokenness. The world is spoilt and there is sin and exile and pain and division. And ultimately, death has the final word. And then there is the world to come, the age to come, the age of fulfillment, where the world is made whole. And the beauty is unspoilt. And there is forgiveness and goodness and health and unity and freedom and and joy. And joy. Maybe that's what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom of God. Those are the qualities, if you like, of of God's kingdom. Uh, Those are the things that endure, that that are the signs of, of God's of God's kingdom. And, and the pivot point, if you like, the point at which everything changes, the, the event, the cataclysmic event, and you heard those in that reading about the sky turning red and all those sort of things, which, which Jewish, Jewish imagery for, for this cataclysmic event, if you like, is the coming of God's chosen one, his anointed one, the Messiah. Who would, defo- who would defeat the forces of evil that oppressed Israel. In the first century, that was Rome. Rome had occupied Israel. Rome oppressed Israel. In the first century, it was Rome that would be dealt with. Rome would be demolished. And this Messiah, this saviour figure, would take up his role as the ruler of the entire world. And would inaugurate this this period of wholeness and peace and freedom and prosperity. God's Messiah would be king. And these these things on the right hand side as I'm looking at it. uh, Would sum up his reign. And Peter begins, people of Israel, listen. Really listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus, the Nazarene, by doing powerful miracles and signs and wonders through him, as you well know. Some of them may have seen. Some of them may well have seen some of the things that Jesus did, some of the healings. They were there. 
but God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, <clears throat> sorry, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. I wonder how many in the crowd that day were in a previous crowd. When Pilate asked them to choose between Jesus and Barabbas. And they chose Barabbas. And Pilate said, what shall I do with Jesus? Crucify him, they They shouted. Crucify him, crucify him. I wonder how many of those listening to this sermon were there in the crowd shouting those words. When Peter says you, I think he literally means in some cases you. Of course, that's not the end. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life. A death could not keep him in its grip. Now he is exalted to the place of the highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. What Peter is saying is that this Jesus who you crucified, he is actually what it's all about, what your story, what your faith is all about. He is the goal. He is the climax. He is the fulfillment of everything that you have hoped for. And you put him to death. He is the one that you were waiting for. And in his death and in his resurrection, all this stuff, all this stuff has been dealt with. All the brokenness, all the sin, all the pain, all the death itself even, has been dealt with. Even death couldn't keep him in his grip. If you like, the floodgates have been open wide and wholeness and beauty and forgiveness and freedom and joy and peace, shalom, has flooded in through this Jesus. You got it wrong, he said. You get it wrong, but God has made it right. God has made it right. But more than that, he's saying you got it wrong because that, this scheme doesn't work anymore. These two ages are not consecutive. One does not follow the other. They overlap. We live, he says, with one foot in the present age and one foot in the age to come. We live in what verse 17 calls the last days. The already and the not yet. When God's kingdom has come and is present, but we know there is still brokenness. We know there is still death. We know these things will not end until Jesus comes again. But these, say Peter, these are the last days. These are the days of the Spirit. In these last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. And then later, as the Father has promised, and the Father, as he has promised, gave him the Holy Spirit, that's gave Jesus, to pour out 
upon us. Just as you see in here today. That's what's happening here, Peter said. This is how you understand what is happening here. This is the coming of the Spirit. This is the beginning of the last days of the age to come. We live in the age of the Spirit. The Spirit is God's gift to us, to the church, to empower us for worship and for witness in word and deed and to build us together as a family. I found, saw an interesting tweet this week by a guy called Glenn Packiam. He's an American pastor. Uh, and he made this comment, which I found really helpful, actually. There's no speaking of the Spirit without also speaking of the church. And there is no speaking of the church without speaking of the Spirit. In the New Testament, the church and the Spirit are, are inextricably linked The Spirit is the sign, the mediator of God's presence and God's glory. Those times in worship where you just sense that God is so close, that's that's the Spirit. And actually, even if you don't sense it, we believe by faith that Christ is here, by the Spirit. God works in the world through the church. And we are empowered by his spirit. The work of the spirit is in part, big part at least, to form us. And churches like us. So that we can be genuine kingdom communities. Which glorify God together. And witness to the truth that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. It's the Spirit who makes us grow in faith. It's the Spirit who animates our prayers and our practices. It's the Spirit who who changes us so that more and more we become like Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit who makes us into a family. Praise God. Praise God. And to be a Christian is at least in part, big part I would say, To be drawn into the life of the church. Where we know and we experience God's rescuing power. In the the book of Acts, throughout Acts, when people become Christians, they're drawn into the community of God's people, into the church. Into God's family. And in a sense, Acts is what that looks like. Acts is all about what that looks like. And so in verse... 17 and 18, where in the last days God said, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, he says, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike. And they will prophesy. I don't know about you, but you might expect the Spirit to respect the way things are done. Yeah? The way, God that is, the way God is meant to work is through the official channels. And so if the Spirit is to come, let it be poured out on the chief priests 
and on the official religious leaders and teachers. That's the way it's done. That's the way we do things around here. But that's another statue being demolished. The Spirit inspiring women to speak God's word. Definitely a no-no in the first century. And daughters and sons teaching their parents. Of course, nowadays, what parent doesn't rely on their kids for IT support? But in the first century, this was radical stuff. Parents taught their kids. Their kids didn't speak God's word to them. That's, that's not the way it's done. Do you remember when Jesus was in the temple when he was very young? Uh, and it, this caused a stir. This, this, this child seems to know stuff. Where on earth does that come from? The stuff of statues being demolished as the Spirit of God refuses to go by the normal channels, by the respected way of doing things. Seems like the, rule of the game, rules of the game have changed forever. I guess you might say that the outpouring of the Spirit is the ultimate in equal opportunities. doesn't matter whether you're young or old, or male or, or female, or slave or free, or Jew or Gentile. All are included. It doesn't matter whether you have a degree or whether you left school at 16. Whether you are single or married or divorced. Especially doesn't matter if society kind of thinks you're a bit of a second class citizen or you feel it. Or you've spent your whole life feeling excluded. None of that matters. None of that matters. What matters is faith in Jesus. The new creation, the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the spirit goes roughshod over all the ways in which society orders us and separates us and, and divides us and judges us. This is a guy called John Yates. I don't know if any of you have ever come across him. Rob, Rob, Rob's come across Rob, uh, John. John heads up the Youth Endowment Fund. It, it's a charity uh, which was set up to serve the most vulnerable children in the UK. And he, he's written this book called Fractured. Why our societies are coming apart and how to put them back together again. Uh, and in his book, he talks about this. He talks about people like me syndrome. Have you come across that before? People like me syndrome. Uh, it refers to the fact that we tend to cluster with people like us. With people who are of the same age, with the same income kind of level, with the same education level, maybe the same race, the same politics. We, we gather in groups with people who are like us. Apparently, research shows that half of the graduates in, in Britain have no friends without degrees. Most pensioners don't know anyone under 35 outside their own family. Half of us have no friends from a different ethnic group. And despite rumours to the contrary, research shows that whilst it might have morphed a bit, the class system is still alive 
and kicking. People like me syndrome. So what you might say, uh, isn't that to be expected? Not everyone wants to listen to me regale them with tales of all shots run to the fifth round of the FA Cup in 1978-79. I need to find a group of people who are like me who are going to be vaguely interested in that sort of stuff. Uh, I feel comfortable around people like me. That's true, isn't it? We feel comfortable with people who are like us. Uh, maybe human nature, maybe that's, that's what it is. But actually think about the difficulties when, when people like me syndrome becomes embedded deep within a society, deep within a culture. You have in-groups and out-groups. Those with power and resources tend to stay with powers and resources. Those who are excluded tend to be kept out. Democracy is vulnerable to leaders who will exploit divisions and, and play on differences. Tribalism. And we become less able to hear and to learn from and enjoy those from outside our circle. Our lives are poorer. But more importantly than all of that, when we get caught up in people like me syndrome, we, we stand in the way of God's plan, which is to build a church which demolishes all those barriers that we put between us, all those ways we, we go into tribes. I found this quote in the week. No idea who Aubrey Sequeira is, but the glory of Christ is seen most vividly when outsiders observe the cross-shaped and cross-cultured love and unity that believers from various backgrounds share with one another. When we come together, I was going to say in spite of our differences, that's not quite the right. When we come together and celebrate our differences and learn from each other and enjoy each other, and discover our unity in Christ. Then Christ is glorified. And we witness to the gospel. And we witness to the kingdom. We get a foretaste of the kingdom. That's what the Spirit does. It frees us from that people like us syndrome. It calls us to leave our tribes behind and to become part of this strange community which the New Testament calls Jesus' body, and we often call church. This is the place where God wants to break down barriers between us and to build us up in mutual love and affection and commitment. To grow cross-generational friendships, old and young, enjoying each other, being together, cross-cultural friendships. It's a place where we all belong. But more than that, we all have a part to play. God pours out his spirit on all, all of us who give allegiance to Jesus Christ. 
Sons and daughters speak out the word of God. Retired men and women dream dreams. And you have a part to play. You all have a part to play. We all have a part to play. We belong. We belong here. And I guess for us as a church, one of the ways we give expression to that is church membership. Church membership really recognizes those two things. A, I belong, and B, I have a part to play here. This is my place. This is home. So if you've been coming for a while and this feels like your church, then can I encourage you to think about becoming a member? To put practical, it's, it's, easy to, it's easy to hold these things in our mind, but actually sometimes it helps to give practical expression to that. Speak to me, speak to Richard, speak to one of the elders uh, or your small group leader. To say, I belong here and I have a part to play here. Actually, small groups, I just mentioned them. Small groups is where a lot of this stuff is actually grounded. Where we learn together, where we hear from each other. Where we grow together, where we support each other, where we make friends with, often with people we wouldn't normally. I look at some of the makeup of some of our small groups and I think, where else would you, lot, you, you bunch of people ever get together? Uh-huh. That's gospel. That's a sign of the kingdom. When this strange, weird, and wonderful, different group of people get together and respect each other and learn from each other and learn to love and support each other. And if you're not part of a small group yet, and we have a virtual one for those who are watching at home, it's not just, we, if you can't meet in person, there's that option. Uh, can I recommend you to think about it if you're not part of a small group? Speak to Tim, who I don't think is here this morning, who's in charge of small group. Again, speak to me or speak to Charlie. Uh, and we'll find a group for you. And I haven't put it on here, uh, but I should have done. Uh, let's learn to listen to each other. And maybe learn to listen to the ones who are not always at the front. The ones who not always got the loudest voice. Uh, uh, the youngsters, maybe. I remember going into school, and they used to have this thing called Ask... I, I did a lunchtime Christian club, and there's this thing called Ask Andy, which is they put their questions in a box. And then you'd pick out the question, and I would have to answer the question. And one of the tactics you very quickly learn while you're trying to think about the answer is, well, ask them what they think. <laughs> so, so these kids would ask the question, and they, uh, uh, um, so, well, what do you think? And sometimes some of the answers, I think, wow. There's a wisdom and a clarity. And, and God, numbers of times God spoke to me through, through, those, through those kids. Uh, the older folk, it's very easy to sometimes you think, push them out. So much wisdom. So much wisdom lived from experience there. Uh, those who maybe find it difficult to speak, who are not confident in speaking again, maybe that's where small groups can help. Learn to listen to each other, I believe. Really believe. I know in home groups I've been in, a number of times God speaks through the last person sometimes I'd expect them to speak through. 
It's learn to listen to each other, to listen to the Spirit as, as, as she encourages us. And finally, let's, if nothing else, be aware of people like me syndrome, both here in the church and outside in the community. And let's look for ways in which we can make friends across the divide, as it were. I think I saw some figure which said uh, the average barrister, I'm not having a good barristers here, the average barrister would have to invite 100 people to lunch before they'd invite anybody who didn't have a degree. (laughs) Who can we invite to lunch that maybe we wouldn't normally, that's different to us, that feels maybe slightly awkward because we we don't know what we're going to talk about, all that sort of thing. You see, that person you have virtually nothing in common with may just be God's gift to you. May just be the one who will speak God's truth into your life. That person who's really struggling, who feels like they're clinging on, they may be God's gift to you and to me. Young men dreaming dreams. Old women having visions. God speaking through each of us. It's a wonderful vision, isn't it? I thank God for the ways I've experienced that. And I long to experience it more. Thanks be to God. Amen.